Hey guys, it's Rachel Silver Cohen. And today on Unpolished Therapy, we have special guest, Lissa Weiss, author of The Skinny Jeans Diet. Lissa doesn't just talk the talk, she's walked the walk. As a self-proclaimed recovering serial dieter, her 25-year battle with gaining and losing weight has given her a firsthand leg up when it comes to helping others get a grip on their own emotional and compulsive eating issues. Imagine wrapping your head around the theory that weight loss has less to do with calories and everything to do with strategies. Lissa teaches her clients how to break free of a destructive and demoralizing relationship with food, much like a bad boyfriend. Weight, she says, isn't the problem for most dieters. It's a symptom, a symptom of being out of control with food. What you put in your mouth is secondary to what you put in your head. If you change your thinking, she says, You'll change your eating and finally fit into your pants. Liz's pants aren't just skinny. She's a smarty pants too. Earning her undergrad degree from Wash U in St. Louis and her graduate degree in nutrition from Columbia University, Liz is another one of our guests with a lot of letters after her name. So let's ditch the couch, grab the mics, and listen as she teaches us how to ditch our disordered thinking by grabbing hold of the root of the problem so we can finally break up with the shame, guilt, and self-loathing that haunts the lives of most dieters. This calorie-free conversation starts now, so let's dig in. What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. It's Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca. So you know what that means. It's another episode where we're ditching the couch, grabbing the mics, and breaking down all the unpolished wreckage. Good morning, Dr. Boca. Good morning, Rach. How you doing? I am great. How excited are you for today? I know. I'm really, really excited. I want to get right into it, if you don't mind. I want to get right into it, too. I like have my snacks ready to go. <laughs> I don't want to like get into any trouble. I did my homework <laughs> assignment. I read Liz's book from cover to cover. So let's just bring her in and let's get going, okay? Absolutely. All right. Lissa, are you here with us? I am here and I am excited to talk with you guys today. Well, we're excited too. Thank you so much for joining us. This is definitely a conversation for the masses. So we're going to make it one big, huge meal. And I'm saving all my <laughs> caloric intake for this conversation today. Wait, are you going to make it so that we don't binge after this through all the stress and all the angst as we're learning all the strategies and techniques that you're going to offer? I'm going to help you think differently about food, overeating, and dieting that you've never thought before because weight really isn't the problem for most dieters. It is the symptom. The problem is our thinking. And I work with the most smart, savvy, sophisticated dieters out there. They could tell me the phytonutrient content of a piece of broccoli, but they can't stop eating. Yeah. And um, you know, I specialize in emotional eating because it doesn't matter how smart you are. Well, then you don't want to know how I eat because they don't call me unpolished for a reason. (laughs) At least I'm (laughs) consistent in that area, which leads me to like, if we can just jump right in, I was taken 
literally from page two in the book where you come clean right out of the gate about sharing that you yourself, like I said in the intro earlier, you're not just preaching. You yourself are living this lifestyle from your own personal journey. And if you would mind sharing with the audience to get started, what was your backstory? What was the struggle and what brought you from point A to point B? Yeah. So I somehow got the message when I was younger that, you know, good, pretty, good girls only felt unicorn and happy emotions. And I stuffed down any emotion that wasn't, you know, unicorns and sparkles. I was always trying to be a good girl. I deep down felt like I wasn't enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't funny enough. I wasn't smart enough. And the only place that never spoke back, that never judged me, or I could let it all out was at the bottom of a bag of potato chips. Mm-hmm. And so I started secret eating when I was, I mean, I must've been 11 years old and I would, you know, come home from the school bus and, you know, pray my mother wasn't home yet from work because I could be alone with the food for a little while. And I would eat the minute I walked in the door. It was like I could hang up my representative self, Mm -hmm. that it was good all day and, you know, tried to be perfect all day and I could let it all hang out. And I created a habit and an addiction to binge eating. At the time, the DSM manual only had eating disorders, the main eating disorders as anorexia and bulimia. I didn't know this until I went to graduate school, but I had binge eating disorder, but, and it started at a young age and it followed me through up until graduate school. It was my dirty secret. No one knew about it until I told a boyfriend in college. He was the first person I ever spoke the words to about what I did. And that backfired on me big time because he not only called my parents, which I think was actually, it was a blessing and they were very supportive, but he proceeded to tell all my roommates in college. And it was just, it was horrific because it was such a dirty secret to me because of the way I ate and what I did. And I hid it all these years. And anyway, um, binge eating disorder is when you eat a huge amount of food in a short period of time or when you graze and overeat all day long, either Mm -hmm. one, usually done when no one is around. It's always almost done when no one is around. And you hide the evidence and it's your dirty little secret. And you eat a large amount of food in a short period of time, usually. So you eat the whole entire bag of pretzel goldfish. You eat 43 Oreos. You know, you eat the whole sleeve of Thin Mints. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is the number one problem for emotional eaters. And it is the number one eating disorder in the world, more than anorexia and bulimia combined. So my book is a girlfriend's guide, tone of voice about bad boyfriend foods and equating this way of eating to being involved with a bad boyfriend to a very serious topic. Of um, compulsive eating and emotional eating. So I love that explanation of it. Can you just go a little bit more into this bad boy concept? I mean, I have a million questions, but like, let's finish the whole picture and then we can dissect it and break it all down. Yeah. So one of the things I did when I started practicing, and I always say my clients, you know, the reason why I help you is because I am you. It's like any other like 12 step kind of a program. Like you want to find someone who's come out the other side. And I have 97% of dieters fail. When they say that stat, what they really mean is that less than 3%, mm-hmm. 3% of dieters will lose more than 20% of their body weight and keep it off for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I am one of the 3%, one of the it girls. And I, in my practice, I started talking about dieting and equating certain foods to a bad boyfriend. 
And so there are certain foods and I call them bad boyfriend foods. And these are foods that like a bad boyfriend, whenever you get involved with them or him, it ends badly with you overeating them. And here's the thing about bad boyfriend foods, which is unlike other dietitians and nutritionists, they don't address this. It's not the food. It's how you behave around the food. Mm -hmm. So one girl's, just like a bad boyfriend, one girl's bad boyfriend might be another person, another girl's good guy Mm -hmm. because we are all attracted to different things and we all actually, you know, are programmed to pick out on different things. And so like, for example, I have clients, I just had someone yesterday who loves cheese. Like she cannot keep really good cheese in her house and cheese doesn't do it for me. I could keep Three in this house for three weeks, other than it getting moldy and barely touch it. So it's not the food, it's how you behave around the food. And that is a really revolutionary approach to thinking about food because most dieters, most nutritionists say, you know, no carbs, no alcohol, no sweets. And that's not livable, it's not practical, and it's not necessary. It makes dieting and losing weight harder. Okay. So there's so many prongs here and I want to make sure like we literally get to all the spokes, but I do want to back up because you mentioned, Lissa, that once you were outed for a lack of a better word, and that probably was a good thing. And then your parents knew, and I would imagine then there was some road to recovery there. And we don't have to get into all of that, but I do want to mention just so that the listeners are aware, when you talk about the fact that you are an it girl, which I I love that reference in your book. Yes, you are one of the success stories. But the thing that spoke to me in the book, initially, you wrote on page 169, which was right off of the heels of your statistic that you just mentioned about 95% of people who are on a diet actually are going to gain that weight back within five years. And you write, the problem isn't losing weight. Almost every dieter loses some weight. The problem is keeping it off. And Mm -hmm. then you go on to say, though I had lost the weight, I hadn't lost the problem. I was still thinking like a fat girl. The weight was gone. The scale had dropped and my dress size had shrunk, but my head was still the same. Within three months of stopping my diet, I gained back nearly all the weight I'd lost. And, and I want to start there because for the masses, there are so many of us who it's like, I'm on a diet. You're on a diet. It's Monday. I'll start a diet. I just got off a diet. Now I'm starting a different diet. And it's like, we're these hamsters on a wheel. And I think it's so important that you wrote in the book, and this is where I kind of stopped dead in my tracks. If we could control the way that we have this relationship with food or this bad relationship with food for that matter, we wouldn't be on and off diets. And I kind of want to get to the piece, and this is maybe where Dr. Boca can chomp at the bit here with this cognitive behavioral therapy piece, because how do we get to the root of the problem? If we all, and by all, I mean people, at least in my world, and certainly me, when I wake up in the morning till the second I go to bed at night, that food is like my best friend. How do we retrain ourselves 50 plus years into the mix of a world where society is not making it any easier for us? Well, one of the things I do is I minored in addiction in psychology in graduate school because I took the nutrition science, the knowledge of how you lose mm-hmm. weight and body works. And I combined it with addiction psychology. And the thing is, when I say I didn't lose the mindset, I lost the weight and I regained it all the time. And 
you know, I, there wasn't a diet I wasn't on. There wasn't money that wasn't thrown at this. The mindset is that food is my savior. It's my judger when I overeat it. It is my best friend. It is going to help me. It's my drug, my Xanax to help me anesthetize. In my office, I use addiction psychology to help my clients think differently so that they can feel differently and then they can behave differently. That's the domino effect. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, I use eating behavior psychology. Like, we, why am I being told to eat off of a small plate? You know, and and we have to get smart to get skinny. That's my byline on my mm-hmm. website, which means that I learned that there are certain foods, my bad boyfriend foods, that I can't bring in the house. Why? Because most women gain weight after 4 p.m. in their mm-hmm. own kitchens. I learned that like I have real tactical advice. Like I don't want to just be told do this, do that. And that's what all my clients say about me. They say, listen, I wish I met you 10 years ago and $10,000 ago. So one of the things that I do is I change my thinking. So for example, you know, this happens to me a lot. You have a stressor. In the mm-hmm. book, I use my mother-in-law, but let's take one mm-hmm. now. I'm spending a lot of money and I'm over budget. So I open up my bank account and I'm saying, oh my God, I'm going through money so quickly. Okay. And I say, shoot, I have to create a budget, but I don't want to create a budget. That's not fun. And so I walk over to the kitchen three times and put my hand in the pretzel goldfish because I don't want to have to create a budget. I don't want to do that. And now what I do is I set up, I have set up in my life other vices to use to help me get the rush and the numb and the calm and the soothe that the food used to give me. Like Mm -hmm. what? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I can give you some of my personal ones. Like you said, like I feel like I'm pretty educated and stuff, but I love watching Netflix and Housewives. And I will literally say to myself, so one of the things I teach is that you can have a stressor at 10 a.m. in the morning. You know, you open up your bank statement or you get a huge bill. And I can't at 10 a.m. go and watch Netflix. But ju- again, this is all from science. Just the thought of saying, Lissa, at four o'clock, at six yep. o'clock, be finished with your day. And you're going to go lie down, not in a room attached to the kitchen, in your bedroom, right? Location is everything in real estate. It's everything in weight loss. And you're going to watch your show. And literally, because I've done this so long, I press play and it's like the world falls away. And I get the feeling I used to get from eating an Entenmann's cake of, I don't have to deal with the world right now. I can just let my shoulders drop and let loose. So I use other vices, other, you know, I come up with my clients with what vices they want to use. It's also a reframe and using the skills, Dr. Boca, you know this, Mm -hmm. I figured out a way to make myself feel better. So I don't need 43 Oreos to make me feel better. And that could be a reframe on my own, which I help my Mm -hmm. clients with reframing all the time. That could be my uh, listening to a podcast on whatever it is that's troubling me or that I'm struggling with at the moment. That's making me uncomfortable because we know that the more we listen and more information that we gather, the more knowledge we get. Something seems less scary. All negative emotions are fear-based. You're afraid of losing what you have or not getting what you want. So I use that knowledge from the science to help me say, okay, instead of saying you're so stressed, say, whoa, whoa, whoa you're so scared. I do mm-hmm. that. So I listen to my podcast. I get information. I reframe. And I have 
practice this enough, which is one of the things I help my clients with, with repetition, repetition. And so what used to happen is after a a stressful day, I found myself wandering around my kitchen. Now, after a stressful day, because it's been so many years, I say, you know what? I'm going to go sit down and watch the housewives because that relaxes me. Mm-hmm. And that's how I get my reboot. And that is way fewer calories than eating a sleeve of thin mints. So it's a reframe. Yeah. And I liked in the book too, you you mentioned that fences make for great neighbors, but fences around those triggers help you avoid the triggers where I think you mentioned like you come in from work and you go right upstairs and you change out of your clothes and you kind of redirect or you chew gum or drink a tea or, you know, something like that. And I get all that. And this is where I'm going to kind of bleed the lines here with the work that Dr. Boca and I do, because I get it. I hear everything that you're saying, but it doesn't necessarily translate that even while you're talking, I'm like, what did I have for snack last? Or what did I have for lunch today? Or when I was preparing for this podcast this morning, like, did I eat appropriately? Because what if Lisa tests me? And what is, if, if I'm good, quote unquote, we talk about good right, and, bad and bad constantly, right? Then like, what is, that open me up for for dinner tonight? And and what I want to talk about is the idea that we know now from research and science that there's evidence to say that when someone has an addiction, be it alcohol or drugs specifically, but maybe sex gambling falls into this category, there's some type of real hereditary pattern that we can point to. And I wonder with food, I kind of want to know what both you guys think on that. Is there a hereditary factor with that? Because after you answer it, I want to I want to share something with both of you. But I am curious as to if food addiction is in fact an addiction, as is alcohol and drugs, et cetera, can we put it in the same category that there may be some type of genetics involved? Okay, so for food addiction, um, I do not believe it's hereditary. I think it's environmental and I think it's a crutch. And I actually think all addiction is the same, whether you're gambling, smoking, shopping, Instagramming, overeating to a degree that you are in pain with the way you look and you feel. And you know, when you're overeating, you have this, I'm talking about overeating when you have this aura come over you where you're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, I can't believe I just ate the whole bag. Right. Or oh my God, I can't believe how many cookies I just ate. Or I can't right. believe I ate this rotisserie chicken. And I believe that it is because we use whatever substance you're picking up to change the way we feel. And that isn't hereditary. That is a habit and that can be changed. That can be changed. And what we tell people for weight loss in my field is very different than what we tell them for healthy eating. They really should be divided into two totally different specialties. In my office, I see a ton of healthy overeaters, yep. right? Mm-hmm. I always use this example. Um, if you have a twin, like Rachel, if you have a twin. I do have a twin. I do have a twin. In real life. life. Which in real is, life. Which, which, I, which, hands to God, is part of the story I want to tell you after about food. Oh, but my we'll God. we'll get to that in a second. But go okay. ahead. So this is going to be an extreme example, but it makes the point. Okay. If you, want to, if you and your twin both want to lose weight and you are genetically identical, Okay. And you do everything exactly the same, the way your activity, everything is exactly the same. And depending upon whatever your caloric deficit needs to be, because the human body cannot lose weight. 
unless it is in a caloric deficit. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. how healthy you are. If you are in a, and there's like some, you know, protein and fiber, you can eat a little bit more. There's all those little things, but I'm talking in general, you have to be in a caloric deficit to lose weight. A woman in Nigeria needs to be in caloric deficit to lose weight. Okay. So let's say your twin, I say to I say to you, Rachel, I want you to eat 1500 calories of every superfood of kale, of quinoa, of salmon, 1500 calories. And I say to your twin, I want you to eat 1100 calories of M&Ms. You might be healthier if we cut you open. Even that is questionable with the mm-hmm. research, you know, being overweight is one of the biggest morbidity factors, but she will have thinner thighs. She will have thinner thighs because when it comes down to it, and the way I teach, you know, we say it's not about calories and it's really not, we, but you have to address calories. Every diet sure. is calorie counting, just something else. Because if you eat too many calories, you're not going to lose weight. So I do something called calorie accounting. I use it like money in a bank. I give everyone a budget and we might even give different budgets on different days of the week. It's all personalized. And anyway, you have to be in that caloric deficit. But if you don't have the behavioral strategies in place, it doesn't matter. You're going to overeat if you turn to food to change the way you're feeling. And every addiction is this. Mm-hmm. Every alcoholic turns to alcohol to change the way they're feeling. You want to feel better. You want to keep your happy on. You don't want to deal. You don't, you're anxious. You're depressed. Whatever you are. So it's no different with the food when you're overeating. Now, there are some times that you just have something that is just so yummy in front of you. Like, If I'm around jelly donuts, I want to eat them. So what do I do? I make sure that I control my environment, that I'm not around jelly donuts too much. And we use eating behavior psychology. I use it to help my clients. So I don't really love cheesecake. Whenever I have company over, I like to serve cheesecake because I won't eat it because I don't really care about it. When I go out of the house, I might get a jelly donut and go buy one, or I might bring six to someone's house if there's six guests. So there's these strategies that really work and they're all based on eating behavior psychology. There's a real, a real discipline called eating behavior psychology. And most nutritionists, I don't know why they don't use it. They focus on the food, the food, the food, but it doesn't work focusing on just the food because you only have so much resolve and diets work, but restrictive diets don't work. They just don't. And if you're always cheating on your diet, you're on the wrong food plan. You just are. So I am like, I'm sitting here so quiet because I'm loving everything that you're saying. I could interrupt a a thousand different times. I too was trained. My first training was with addictions also, but I came from a moderation perspective, right? So that's how I was trained. Leaders in the field of moderation, problem drinking and, and problem substance uses. Now, this was not the extremes. This is not heroin. This is not you know, cocaine, but this was one of us who have an overeating problem, but with an overdrinking or, you know, we were still functioning in society. We had our little dirty secret and what have you. So that's where I learned, like started my clinical work. So a lot of my clinical work is infused with a lot of these high-risk situations. What are your triggers? What are you feeling? How are you thinking? Affects how you feel, how you behave. What are the strategies that we can implement? I still will argue though, that there is, um, In some instances, there might be a biological predisposition. However, 
I still believe the only way that it surfaces is when you're trying to hide and push down something, whether it's the negative emotion of shame, fear, guilt, anxiety, feel it, the inadequacies, the not good enough, all of those feelings. So I'm in aligned with you. I do think, though, the biological predisposition is also environmental in that. I can give you an example, a personal example. I grew up with a father in the 70s who was bulimic and then was also anorexic, okay? So food became the center focus in our house. So I had most likely learned in that environment the goods and the bads of food, what it looked like to restrict, what it looked like to to binge. And I made a conscious effort never to make food an extreme, right? That was me personally. It could have gone both ways, right? I could have become a follower of his trend. I did not, thank God. But food always was an issue, right? Because it was, we had to make sure there wasn't any around or he would binge on it or there was, if you know, if it was around, how did we keep it away from him? So it became an awareness for me. So I think that's what drew me to the addiction field. So I have to say, though, all of the strategies, the idea of how we think and how we feel affects how we behave. Like 100%, I'm right there with you. And I do think that that's part of where the research shows cognitive behavioral therapy is an awesome treatment of choice for these types of issues. And it is not acknowledged in so much of the nutritional world. It's like two different schools of thoughts, which is why I love that you've tied the two together. Yeah. So I've tied it together. But also when someone comes into my office, I don't really even want to, I'm more of a weight loss coach. I don't even want to focus on why they got to where they got. I want to move forward. And so for example, I have a client who said, Lisa, I love to drink and she's a big drinker. And she said, but I want to lose weight. And I said, all right, what do you love to drink? She said, I love white wine. I said, all right, let's go on Amazon. Let's get one of those cups mm-hmm. that has the ounces, and the calories, you know, six ounces is 150 calories. And let's save your white wine for the weekends. And during the week, you'll drink red wine that you don't love as much. Mm-hmm. So that, and we'll, put, we'll figure out a food plan incorporating that so you can still lose weight. She lost 30 pounds with me. And then I have another client who's a junk food eater. And she said, I've been to every nutritionist and they're telling me to stop eating this way. Or Mm -hmm. I I have clients who say, you know, I like to eat everything out of a box. I don't like to cook. And I know I have to cook more. You don't have to do any of that. None of that. I work with every kind of food preference. Those are actually food preferences, like Mm -hmm. how you like to eat. Or if you want to drink your calories, dinner is poured on one night. You know, I personally believe 80-20. 80% of my day is healthy, high-quality foods. 20% is junk. And I need that. And that also is from the science that we know that dieters who have at least one, but preferably two treats built into their food plan every day are more likely to stay on their diet food plan that day than dieters who are having no treats. And so I use all of this in my practice, but it's a way of thinking like, I can't tell you how many dieters will say to me, you know, Lisa, I was in Costco and they were sampling Sheila's, you know, brownie brittle and seven pieces are 180 calories. And I would say to that person, okay, if that's a bad boyfriend food for you, you can eat seven pieces. It's not a bad boyfriend food for you and work that into your food plan that day. And we can do that. But if it is a bad boyfriend food, who are you kidding? You're not going to eat seven pieces. You're going to eat seven pieces at 10 and then seven pieces at 12, right? And so 
I want you to stop looking at the serving size of seven pieces and say, am I a gambler? Am I willing to buy that bag? And am I willing to, the whole bag has, you know, whatever it has, 4,000 calories. Am I willing over the next two days to go through 4,000 calories? And if not, that's an out of the house food. Most nutritionists, let me just say this. Most nutritionists I know that I have met, there are a few of us out there who teach the way I teach, but they categorize foods as macronutrients, proteins, mm-hmm. carbs. Yes. We don't do that in the office. We do not do that. We categorize foods as safe foods, the ones you keep in your house, the foods you eat day in and day out. Hopefully they have portion control. These are the ones that you do not, when you get involved with them, it doesn't end badly with the bad boyfriend. Then we do company foods, foods you bring into the house when you have company so you can share the caloric wealth. That might be my jelly donuts. And then out of the house foods, foods you eat out of the house. And it's different for everyone, for everyone. I love the 80-20 because I have been trying to instill in Rachel forever that like no extreme is good, right? And to find that middle ground for her. And it's something that we've been working on for 105 episodes or 106 episodes. (laughs) So I love that you just said that part of it and that there's ways to manage that even if it means not bringing it into the house, but it doesn't mean you have to cut it out from your life forever. Oh yeah, like there are days, I mean, I have dieters who will say to me, They will text me because I'm very personalized with my clients when you're on my client list. And they will say to me, Lissa, it is three o'clock and I just ate so much licorice. And I will say to them, okay, you know, calorie accounting, where are you at in your day? Do you think? And there are things that, and then some days are just licorice days. Some, but you can still lose weight. Mm -hmm. If you have, if, if I need you know, 1100 calories to be in a caloric restriction. And I choose one day to have 1100 calories of licorice. You don't have to feel bad about that. You just move on the next day and you do it differently the next day. 1100 calories doesn't need to become 4,000 calories because you feel so bad about it. Like, okay, it didn't go as planned, but today was a licorice day. That was your diet today. It was licorice. But if you eat 1100 calories of licorice, if that's your number, then you can still lose weight. You don't have to always feel that self-loathing, regret, remorse, shame. You don't have to always feel that way. Some days eating three jelly donuts that that day, you know, I could tell you a million stories. I could tell you the story of my friend who got divorced and she lost a lot of weight quickly. Not that you want to be doing that. But I said to her, what's going on? What's going on? You lost all this weight. And she said, all I can barely eat. And when I do eat, all I want to do is go to Bee's Cakes and get two of their big chocolate chip cookies. Well, I know that each cookie is 400 calories because I've done them. I, I know the calories and a lot mm-hmm. of stuff. So she ate 800 calories of, of cookies. And she of course lost you're going to lose weight. Of course. Right, because she had 800 calories. Other nutritionists would say, you shouldn't do that. That is very unhealthy. That's not good. No, but she lost weight. Now I'm not saying you want to do it that way, but if you do that one day, okay. Mm-hmm. You did that one day and the next day, maybe you'll eat chicken and salad. You don't need to eat a certain way to lose weight. We need to stop sending out the message to dieters. And it promotes binge eating. It really does. You don't have to. Sorry, you guys, I, I, both of you, I'm, I'm silencing right now because I've been very patient here. You've both been incredibly <laughs> polished in your craft and your trade and your smarts and bravo. Okay. But the bottom line is, is that people who are lunatic eaters with their food are not as polished. I mean, you're, you just said 1100 calories and I'm starting to shake because I could eat 1100 calories just sitting here listening to you guys have a conversation. The reality is for women, and I know it, it was 
very women focused in the book. And in the back, you had some adjustments for men with their calories and all that. But if we're going to just focus here on women and what society has done to us that we just cannot keep up with, are we supposed to be uber thin? Are we supposed to have be a little zaftic? Are we supposed to be somewhere in the middle? Every other minute, like the plan is changing. Someone like me, listen, I don't know if you've listened to all of our episodes, but Dr. Boke and I have talked a lot in the past, love languages, okay? I make no secret. My love language is fucking food, okay? You take a diamond-encrusted piece of pizza and put it in front of me, (laughs) you can ditch the diamonds. I am plowing through that pizza, all right? That is what speaks to me. That is always what speaks to me. The way that I engage with people, the way that I engage with my family and my friends and come into my home and I'll cook for you, that's a cultural thing across the board, right? I'm actually surprised you said earlier, when you sit down with your clients, you're not even really that concerned with how they got in your chair in the first place. You just want to help them lose the weight or stay on path. For me, I feel as though if we're not addressing what the root is, then all the symptomatic nonsense is never really going to get solved. And when I was reading your book, I started kind of in my own mind, having my own little non-therapy therapy to try to pinpoint where did my food shtick come from? What are my issues rooted in? I don't think I've ever had like serious eating issues where I've ever hospitalized this or doctor that, but just the neurotic Jewish crazy lunatic food issue problem, right? So I started thinking back, where did this come from? And you said earlier, like, well, pretend you had a twin. Well, haha, guess what? We don't have to pretend. <laughs> I have a twin. All right. And one of my first memories of issues with food was I would wake up in the morning, and my parents have always retold this story in jest. Rachel would wake up in the morning and she would say, What's for dinner tonight? If the answer was something quote unquote good, right? I eat like lamb chops. I was happy. Rachel was happy. (laughs) Rachel was going to have a happy day. Okay. If the answer was meatloaf or something that I really didn't like, according to the powers that be, Rachel was sad. Rachel was going to have a bad day. Okay. Now my twin food meant nothing. Okay. But for me, from a very early age, for whatever that issue is, I don't know. Fast forward. Okay. It was my nephew, not my nephew, my, my cousin's bar mitzvah. Okay. Who at the, you know, the age as we get older, the gap kind of shrinks, but when we're young, five years is, oh my God, my adult cousin. So my twin and I go to the bar mitzvah and we're little pipsqueaks, maybe seven years old. And there's a buffet. Okay. I had never been to a buffet before. Okay. No one taught me what to do at a buffet. So I'm standing there with my plate and my twin is behind me. And I can't see what's on my twin's plate. I only know what's coming in front of me. So there is food galore and there's the servers. And I just put my plate out and I I don't know, maybe I'm like Oliver and like, thank you, sir. May I have another? I, I don't know. And I now take everything that they're giving me. Okay. No idea what's going on behind me. My twin gets whatever my twin needs. We come, we sit down at the table. The next thing I know, you would think that like it's the laugh riot of the century because my plate, you cannot see the bottom, okay? There is not one piece of china that you can see because it's just piled up with every 
food choice that was provided to me. And my twin, there's like a French fry and a chicken wing, okay? And everyone now thinks this is the most hilarious thing ever. Oh my God, look at the twins, look at the twins, look at her, look at him, okay. And my grandmother, okay, oh, Kenahara, Rachel, look at her, look, she can eat. And these are the things that was on the replay, the story over and over and over and over. I'll be happy if I have something good to eat. I'll be sad if I have something bad to eat. Why can one twin eat nothing? But this twin over here is literally like I'm going to the electric chair. Now you come full circle, 51 years old, and my whole world is food. Okay. My friends of mine, our whole bonding experience, we don't talk about anything like marriage or children or profession. We literally, our entire relationship, we just trade food pictures back and forth and pictures and where are we having lunch and what are we doing? And oh my God, have you tried that restaurant? That is what the narrative has become. And listen, you wrote in the book somewhere, which I got a kick out of, food is not a trophy, right? You're not getting a prize here with the food. And I Mm -hmm. laughed at that because hand to God, and maybe someone should, you know, throw me in parental food jail. But because I have two boys, And food has always been such a delicious, right? No pun intended, but thing in my world. I do feel that food is a reward. Every time something good, oh my God, where are we going to celebrate? Or what are we having for dinner? Or mom, what are you making me? When my kids come home from school, I swear to God, most parents, oh, how was school today? What did you learn? The first thing I say to them, okay, they're 16 and 18, okay? Did you like the lunch I packed you? What'd you think of the lunch? Now, I say that to you guys, both with, you know, your degrees and whatnot, back to the hereditary thing. Are they going to be fucked up with food because I feel like food is my middle name? No. So, Rachel, let me just say this. I can relate to everything you just said because I think about food all the time. I love food. I eat pretty much everything. I am not restrained at all. I could eat a man under the table. Mm -hmm. And if someone said to me, Tomorrow, Lissa, you could binge eat a whole thing of ice cream and a whole thing of potato chips every night and not gain weight. I wouldn't be like, oh no, please, I could never do that anymore. <laughs> I would say, bring it bring on. It. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I also obsess about food all the time, except this is the difference. Okay. It's no longer my best friend. It is no longer my savior. It is still something I love. I am a food addict in recovery. I will never be cured. When something goes well, I would still love to celebrate with food. When something goes bad, I would still love to make it go away, not by smoking a cigarette or a joint, but by, you know, going to my refrigerator. So Mm -hmm. that that never goes away. It's almost like when someone's an alcoholic and they say, you know, I've been sober for 20 years, but I can walk into the restaurant and walk through the bar to my table and still taste that beer on the back Mm -hmm. of my right? Like it's still, it is... I love food. I I do the same thing you do. Where are we going for dinner? What are we going to do? I'm like studying the menus. I'm planning out the whole week in advance or X amount of days. And this whole good, bad thing, that's something I know that that narrative is if we can figure out a way to squash that, because even in real therapy and to the listeners out there, you know, this today is not real therapy. We want to protect Dr. Boca's license. But we're doing good work here because the reality is this good, bad. Was I good today? Was I bad today? I wake up sometimes in the morning and before I open my eyes, I kid you not, I will say, I'll do a whole thing in my head, right? A calculation of what did I eat? And when I open my eyes, am I going to be upset with myself or am I going to be like Mm -hmm. cool with like, oh, cool. I feel a little spelt today because I didn't completely shit the bed last night. 
But the dictation that it should take over is that's the unhealthy piece Mm -hmm. that I don't know how to really break away from because it's just so ingrained in me. I mean, everything too, I'll be honest, and I'm not rewriting history here. Our society and, you know, someone's born, someone dies, someone has a birthday, someone, it's a holiday. I used to work in finance for many, many years before I had kids. And and even in, in the corporate world, right, as professional as businessmen get, we're having breakfast brain trust meetings, and then we're having lunch and learns, and then we're taking clients out to dinner, and then we're having prospect programs, and we're having seminars. And and I remember specifically, we used to have these big seminars for prospects, and we'd have them at big fancy restaurants. And, And there was a point where we would say, my colleagues and I, like, are these people coming to the seminar? Like, to learn about their finances or are they coming because like we're offering them a big fat baked potato and like a whopping steak like Number what's two. going on here Number and you, two. But you know exactly. what exactly but guess what i was happy to work those nights late night sure sign me up you're taking me to morton's or we're going to ruth's chris or whatever yeah because i want to eat too and the philosophy in this world that like everything is so hyper focused around food how do we get out of that problem lissa well, Rachel, first of all, let me say, like, my favorite thing to do is walk around a supermarket or when a new supermarket opens or a farmer's market. Like, I would do, rather do that than go shoe shopping at Neiman's. Like, I'm not even joking, too. But that's why I say in the book that food is the booby prize. And I just want to just give you a scenario. It's the booby prize because, first of all, when you, I call it food control training, what I teach. And when you are, I'm always thinking about food, even when I'm thin, which I am, and I'm in control of my food, I'm always thinking about it. But now I'm thinking about, what did I eat today? Or what do I, you know, how do I want to structure my day so that I can work that food in? That's mm-hmm. a treat. And I'm still thinking about it, but I'm thinking about it with empowerment. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it that I want to protect yes. the gift that I've been given of increased self-esteem, freedom from self-loathing and beating myself up when the first thing I do is open my eyes. Like it hurts me when a client or when you say, the first thing I do when I open my eyes in the morning is I recap what I ate yesterday, and is the scale going to be up or down? That is not a way to live. Mm-hmm. And when people say to me, oh my God, Lissa, the way you live and the way you think, and you're always thinking about food, that's such de- deprivation. It's the opposite of deprivation. It's liberation mm-hmm. because I no longer, I might have to think about how I'm going to organize my food day, about what foods I'm going to eat. Am I prepped for that? Yes, that takes about five, 10 minutes, but I don't spend hours anymore beating myself up, worrying that I'm going to overeat at a meal before I go out for it. I protect the gifts that I have been given by the habits that I put in place and the way that I think about it. It is a booby prize because in the moment that you're doing it, it feels so good. But then the next morning, as you described when you woke up or 10 minutes after you've done it. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. stop looking at it as a reward. And and I, and I would tell you candidly, I never made food the reward for my kids. And I have a 20-year-old and a 20-year-old. That was not the reward. The reward might be clothing. The reward might be tickets somewhere. It was not the reward because I don't want to do to them not was done to me, but what was done to me, not on purpose, but but that's what I'm saying. Like, so even if there, you may not think there's science behind that hereditary thing, it's like monkey see monkey do my kids now like are foodies. They love food. I mean, they're big, strong, strapping boys and whatever, but like, so do you think that there is like some type of trickle down? Okay. So I think that's environmental. That's right, the environment and by- they grew up in. That's right. not genetic. That's oh, not, well, that, I guess that's what I mean. Envi- right. Yeah. I mean, what yes, goes on? No, in I do think it. 
Absolutely. It's environmental. Yeah. It's, it's yes. And I think that it's not too late to start. I mean, it's really not too late to start making different rewards. Like time. look, food is always going to be a reward for me because I like it, but nothing tastes as good. I know. I know. I know. No, no, no. <laughs> That's a line too, but nothing tastes as good as a well-earned meal. So let's just mm-hmm. give the example. Okay. If I go now and decide that I want to have a bowl of Captain Crunch, I'm just giving an example, mm-hmm. and a bowl of Captain Crunch, my bowl is 200 calories and I can work it into my day and I can still be my caloric deficit for the day. That Captain Crunch tastes delicious. If I have already gone off the rails with my eating or my day has gotten away from me where I'm running out of calories, I'm starting to white knuckle the day and I know I'm not going to be in a weight, in a caloric deficit today, that Captain Crunch tastes different. And so I say there's nothing that tastes as good as a well-earned meal or treat or whatever you want to put in that spot. And there's nothing as, that tastes as crappy as a meal you didn't earn. So if you planned for, it's all about planning and organization. Mm-hmm. And le- if you plan for that, those two slices of pizza, they're going to taste so good because you're still on your food plan. And if you didn't, and you might have to give up, look, there are many nights that I have said, let's use this as an example, going out. Okay. When I go out to a bar mitzvah or a 50th birthday party or whatever it is, I'm a dessert girl. And I know I want to have dessert. Those events, which are not every day, I am willing to not eat the chicken that is served and just eat some of the vegetables on the plate and take those chicken calories and use them towards Mm -hmm. me. That is my choice for that day. Mm Because otherwise I'll eat the chicken, but I'll still eat the cookie because I know I'm going to eat the cookie because I want the cookie. And so this is the food control training that I'm talking about. But I am also always thinking about food. That's my thing. That's my vice. It is. Now I have other vices too now, but that's my vice. I'm not always thinking about a cigarette. I'm not always thinking about alcohol. I'm not always thinking about, I don't know, porn. I'm not. That's not my vice. The food is. So now I want to figure out, because unlike other vices, like it's very insidious, Mm -hmm. um, food addiction, because you can't just say no. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. You have to eat. However, there are ways and there are strategies to say with the bad boyfriend foods, how can I get involved myself with these in a more controlled environment that's safer for me? So like we know from the research, people eat differently than in public than they do in private. Mm-hmm. So you're better off if you know you love pizza, saying to yourself, I'm going to eat pizza when I'm out with my friends or out, mm-hmm. you know, you might still eat two slices, but trust me, if you get a, and, and even with pizza, let's take your example, Rachel, I would say to you, if you're going out for pizza, right, you want to be with a lot of people so you can share the caloric wealth, or you want to go to a place where you can buy it by the slice. Mm-hmm. And then you, I, if it was me, I would get in my car, drive home and eat it at home where I have no more access. Let me tell you something though. And then Lori, I'm going to let you jump in, but I giggled when you talked about your client Joyce in the book. And, you know, again, maybe the names are different, but, but you were talking about Joyce and the depression era kind of philosophy, but portion control. Cause for me, I mean, lay it on. I am living in that depression mindset of food that like, God forbid you should leave one bite left. Like 
I don't do leftovers. There are no leftovers because I've eaten the whole thing. So I got a kick out of that, that, you know, it is a mind. Obviously, I didn't grow up in the depression, but I have that mindset, even with my own kids, like finish that. Either I worked hard to cook that for you. That is the way I'm expressing my love. How could you not accept the love? And I also don't want to waste anything that if they if it does go in the refrigerator, oh my God, that was a hard-earned meal that now no one's going to eat the next day. So I'm the one that's going to end up eating it. Not so much that I liked it so much, but because I don't want to waste it. Right. So I have that too. And it's not, it has nothing to do with how much money you make or have. It's nothing to do with that. It's a depression era mentality eating is I don't want it to go to waste. And sometimes it is about money. Mm-hmm. You spend $200, which I know clients who have on a birthday cake. It's really hard to just throw it away. Right. And so there's workarounds. So for mm-hmm. example, I could have bought very fancy birthday cakes for my kids, but I didn't. I bought them at Costco because I had an easier time parting with $18 of leftover mm-hmm. cake. Then, you know, $218 of leftover cake. So that was my workaround. My kids are getting Costco cakes and guess what? They lived. And I'll give you another example for that, Rachel. My boyfriend, he loves steak and I love a ribeye steak. And instead of buying us each a steak, I buy one big steak because I'm not going to eat. I'll ask, I have some of his, but I won't keep asking it it of him because that's his steak. And I didn't buy a second steak and there's forced portion control because I'll mm-hmm. only eat a quarter of the steak. If I bought two, one for him, one for me, I would eat the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. there were leftovers, I would be eating those leftovers in the morning. When I woke up, I would mm-hmm. have him for breakfast, ribeye steak. I do the workarounds. It's called food control training where I think I don't want to have acts. I don't want leftovers of this. So how can I preempt the leftovers, right? Mm -hmm. And that's depression era mentality, like hacks to do those things. So I have a list now of comments that I want to make, but to that point right there, those are identifying those high-risk situations, right? And coming up with strategies in which you can plan around those because those are going to happen. The birthday cake situation for me was very simple. I make birthday cakes for my kids, right? And we would do it for a family party. I would only make them around the family party. And then I would send everybody else home with these big chunks of cake. So I didn't have it left over. Now, I'm not one to go into my freezer and eat a piece of cake anyway, but like get it out of my house. So I didn't deprive my children of that experience, but I didn't have it sitting around the house for the next 16 months more so than like if people were going to come and I was going to give them a piece. I just sent 98% of it home and kept a few slices in the freezer. Those were the two of the things that I wanted to say. Wait, I just want to jump in and just tell you something about the cake first, because I mean, maybe this is indicative of how my marriage failed, but this is a true story. Okay. When I got married, you know, again, food was a big deal. There is no bride. Okay. I don't care how much I love food. Even I didn't eat at my own wedding. Okay. Correct. But the cake, are you kidding me? I could not wait to have the whole night where like you go back to your hotel room, you you know, my, my ex-husband, my husband at the time, you know, he was down with like the letter opener so we could sit and we could open up, you know, all, all, of, the, all the envelopes. <laughs> and I sat there with the fork eating the cake and I was a pig in shit. Okay. Now that, you know, that tradition that you take the top of the cake, you put it in the freezer and a year out, you get to sit and eat the cake at your one year anniversary. Okay. You didn't the make it here. I'm like, I can't wait for the cake. I can't wait for the cake. I can't wait for the cake. Okay. When we got to the year, okay, there was some bullshit hurricane that happened. Okay. And everything in the freezer got ruined. All right. 
Did I get my cake on my one-year anniversary? No, I did not. I laugh, you know, tongue in cheek, like I should have known then that was the end of the marriage. But you know, <laughs> everyone's got their, their thing with the cake. I couldn't wait to eat that cake. Well, I ate mine and it, I mean, I wasn't even married a whole year. So I ate it by myself just because who else was good? And it tasted like ass. So I threw mine right, away. It's so, freezer burn. It's right, not even good anyway. Exactly. And by then I was divorced. So that's cool too. But I do think that, Rach, I mean, if you did a little bit of digging, I am sure you can start to see that maybe there was something in your family that food was either used as a reward or there was the, the what you guys call the depression, I call the Holocaust mentality going on there and food was used in a certain way. And maybe it was a way for you to differentiate yourself from your brother, or maybe it was a way for you to take all of the feelings that you're feeling and shove them down as we've talked about. But there is something that made growing up in that, you being the one to go and take the food. The issue that I see, and Lisa, you can speak to this also, is that I have patients, for me, they're patients, for you, they're clients, but they come into my office and they're saying all the things that Rachel's saying. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down the little train. Like, let, let's bring it back to the station here. This isn't going to change overnight. We're going to have to make a commitment to start implementing these strategies that we're talking about. Now, you're going to address it, you know, very specifically with calorie counts and and dollar bills or coins or whatever, however you do it with the tokens and and what have you. But as a, a therapist and, and binge eating and, and disordered eating is not my specialty. So I'm trained in it, but I don't really bring it into my practice. So, but assuming that I did, or I was working with someone who was a problem drinker or something, right? We have to start somewhere and it's not going to be perfect, Rach. So you sit here and you say, I'm never going to change my thoughts about how I do this, like load it all up. If I said to you, yes, tomorrow you go out there, make sure that your plate doesn't have as much food on it, or you can't eat more than these calories and da-da-da-da-da, you're going to sit there and of course you're going to implode because you, Rachel, and and Lissa, if you have listened to all of our episodes or any of our episodes, our listeners can attest to this. Rachel wants everything done yesterday and it's all or none. Like that's it. It's got to be perfectly done or it's not getting done, right? And I'm going to say to you, Rach, that we just start to implement one thing at a time or a couple things. And if we don't do it 100%, that's okay. Lisa literally just said, like you can still eat some of those foods. You just have to make a few accommodations. And a lot of my patients don't want to make the accommodations. They don't want to make the little swaps. They don't want to give up anything. And like everything. You have to put effort into it. You have to start and want it bad enough. You can't just make, you know, yes, I want to be thin. Okay, well, that requires certain things. Just like if I wanted to be a nutritionist, I would actually have to go back to school to do that. And I would have to learn and I would have to take classes and I would have to practice and get into this repetition. And it becomes a, a habit eventually, but it doesn't start the habit the first time you do it. So I just, I wanted to say that because I wanted to speak mostly to Rachel in this situation, but to our listeners also, that this is, this is small steps and incremental and it doesn't happen overnight. But once, and you said this at the beginning, Lisa, we make habits out of this and repetition creates those habits. And that's how it started. And that's how we undo it also. Yeah. So Rachel, perfection doesn't exist in dieting. Dieting is a lot of taking five steps forward, taking two steps yes. back, right? You had three great days and then, oh, I blew it last night. And then you pick yourself up. So perfection does not work in dieting. If you're trying to be a perfect dieter, you're going to be a failed dieter and have millions to keep you company. Okay. So that's number one. <laughs> number two, there are strategies that we know work, right? 
not bringing it into your house, right? If it's a bad boyfriend food, um, writing down our food, every, every piece of Thanks. research. And I come from a research background, an obesity research background. That is what I did. I don't look all geeky, but I'm a total research geek. I love clinical studies. I want to know why we're doing things. You know, all the research shows that dieters who write down their food, yeah. more structured and routinized the dieter is, the better they do on their diets, period. Variety stimulates consumption, right? Monotony works in weight loss. Why do people not mess up breakfast? Because they usually have the same three breakfasts, so they don't really mess up breakfast, right? So there's mm-hmm. so much to the science of the eating behavior psychology that brought be, that gets brought in. But perfection will never work in dieting because you will mess up. Compassion is required in dieting because we know from the research that beating ourselves up enough, like we think if we beat ourselves up enough, we're going to beat ourselves into submission of sticking to the diet. That never, right. That exactly. (laughs) The more compassion, which is saying, you know what? You've had three really good days. Okay. You took a step back tonight, but you've been doing really well. And you started food tracking, which you weren't doing before. So if you're going to be a perfectionist, I can almost guarantee you're not going to lose weight. We want to do like we just want to be better. Like, you know, we just try to make some progression, but you will have setbacks. And I always tell my dieters, expect setbacks. It makes them a lot easier and you'll pick yourself up a lot quicker. I know what you're saying, Rachel, because I used to be the same way. I had to be perfect. I had to be the good girl. I had to look good. I had to, I had to get into that dress for that night. And it's so much pressure. Mm -hmm. It's so much pressure. What we need to do is create a relationship with food that's organized, that's calm. We have this chaotic mind. We need to quiet it. And we also need to get real. You can have a day where you just eat pizza, Mm -hmm. but don't eat the chicken and the vegetables too if you really want the pizza because then you're just packing on more calories and you're not going to lose weight, right? And I see this all the time in my office. I'll have it because my dieters know working with me. They'll be like, Lissa, yesterday was a Swedish fish day. Mm-hmm. You know what? Some days they say, and I still lost weight because I just, you know, I I even teach strategies for overeating. I use the science for how to overeat. When I first I got, know you take the bottle of ketchup and you 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 know yeah 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 you, you ruin can the plate food, and the but salt I'm even, and yeah. But I'm even talking about one of the ways, and this was myself teaching myself mm-hmm. because. I didn't know what was going on. I was so scared. But one of the ways, because when you're when you're overeating and you can't stop, it is one of the scariest things. And I get mm-hmm. a lot of young adults, teenagers in my office whose moms I work with, and their kids come to them and they thank God open up to their mothers. They have that kind of relationship and they say, Listen, mom, I don't know. I can't stop eating. I'm in pain. I'm scared. And they're petrified. Like, mm-hmm. why do I keep doing this? Every morning I wake up and say, I'm not going to do it again. And I end up doing it. You know, by the end of the day, I end up doing it again. So one of the things I did to first combat my binge eating was I learned in graduate school that monotony works in weight loss, variety stimulates consumption. And I said, okay, Lissa, you can't just stop overeating because you you can't go from A to Z. Right. There's steps, right? Oh, I right. You're A, I have to go from A to B to F to D. And I said, I'm just going to eat popcorn. And it doesn't matter if I eat 70,000 calories of popcorn, I'm going to stick to one food. And why did I start doing that? Because what I learned later on is that when you stick to one food, if you're starting to go in, I call it going in, you know, you're going into the pantry, you feel yourself going in for that pizza, you feel yourself going in for those cookies. If you stick to one food, you'll usually get out of the binge or the aura of the the overeat Mm -hmm. sooner rather than later. 
And what most people do is they go from food to food to food. So first they eat three cookies and then they eat two handfuls of pretzels and then they eat, you know, the chicken wings. And then, and that actually keeps the overeating going on longer. So these are the things we use in the office to help us, you know, to help us learn and strategize. And, you know, I'm speaking for like some of my cohorts that, you know, us foodies where we all kind of commiserate and then celebrate together vis-a-vis food. And we're all kind of the same, like, oh, I started out because there were cookies in the fridge or the pantry. So I had a couple. And then it's like, okay, well, I did the sweet. Now what can I do with the salt? And then we have this mentality where it's like, oh, I've already fucked up. So let me get it out of my system now. Like, oh, cool. My kid brought home some leftover pizza. I'll eat some of that. Or then I'll grab that. Or if I get rid of that now and eat it, then it'll be gone. And these patterns, again, in the book, I know you you have such great tips. And to the listeners out there, if you pick up a copy of the skinny jeans diet, you know, the rules for eating out plan W, which is, you know, when we go into panic mode, oh my God, it's the weekend. We're going to completely fuck up, right? You're planning and prepping and, sh- and schlepping thing that, that you talk about, Lissa, or you talk about if you fail to plan, you should plan to fail, right? So mm-hmm. you you have great guidelines. And I do think that your structure makes sense. I just think you have to really be committed to stick through it on a day in and a day out. You write too, the first essential step in preventing relapse is eliminating the artificial boundary between weight loss and weight maintenance. And it is an ongoing hill or a cross that we have to bear. And And that's the analogy that I use all the time. It's climbing up a mountain, right? And what I use therapeutically is I give you a backpack when you walk into my office, you know, metaphorically, and we fill it with tools in that backpack. And as you climb up the mountain, sometimes you're going to need the pitchfork and sometimes you're going to need the rope and sometimes you're going to need something else. And those are all your strategies, right? And sometimes you're going to slip. And you're going to start to fall down the mountain. And our goal is everybody's going to fall down that mountain. We have to pull out one of those tools and catch ourselves so that we don't slide all the way down to the bottom of the mountain because climbing up from the bottom is way harder than picking up where you were and just moving on. Like Lissa said, starting the next day fresh and not doing the licorice. Dr. Boca, I love that analogy. I absolutely love it. I'm going to borrow that if you don't mind. I borrowed it from my mentors, so go for it. But relapse prevention is so important. We have to plan for those times because it's going to happen. Absolutely. And one of the things, Rachel, you mentioned all or nothing thinking, getting the fuckets, I call it. Mm -hmm. So I um, say a case of the fuckets. Take case of the fuckets. And that's all or nothing thinking, which always leads to all or nothing eating. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what I do. That's part of my job Mm -hmm. is to coach people off of that ledge of, wait a second, how can I pull myself back here a little bit and not take 300 extra calories that I just ate and turn them into 3000 extra calories? And why, why do, why am I motivated to not get the fuckets? Why? And the thing is, is that you have, it's just like any other addiction. You have to get some success to know what it tastes like Mm -hmm. to want to do it again. And so the first day that you, you know, you somehow leave the kitchen and you go and you watch your show or you call your friend or you don't do it or you, you couldn't do it because you didn't have it in the house. And you're like, oh my God, I just did it. I just did it. I just had two cookies. And let me tell you something, tracking, okay, for the fuckets, writing down your food is almost more important 
when you are in that midst of the fuckets than when you're not. Mm. I'll tell you why. We lose perspective as dieters. So let's say I'm tracking my food all day long and my calories because I believe in calorie accounting. It's like money in a bank, right? Like I want to try to figure out how much money I spent. It's four o'clock and you end up having three Oreos. Each one's 80 calories, so 240 calories. And you're like, oh my God, I just ruined it. I had a great day. It's four o'clock and now I ruin it at four o'clock. I'm almost to the home stretch. You go and you write. I mean, there's so many strategies, but one of the most popular ones is you go and you write it down. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, so far I've had 800 calories today. Now you said 240. Okay, I work with my dieters. Do we need to move your calorie level up that day so you don't feel like you're white knuckling it, that you give yourself a little extra wiggle room? Because better to move your calorie level from 1,100 calories to 1,400 than to say, oh my God, I'm never going to reach 1,100 calories, get the fuckets, and then eat 3,000 more calories, right? There are real strategies from the science, Mm -hmm. from the psychology that work. Very similar. If someone was an alcoholic and they ended up taking a drink for whatever reason, whether they were triggered by uh, feelings or they were just putting, they walked into the bar when they didn't mean to, we wouldn't say to them, you're a failure. Oh, I use this example in the book with my potty training my son. Okay, Mm -hmm. we'll use that example. Mm -hmm. I stayed home for a week. I basically followed this kid around like the CIA. And for two seconds, I left him to probably put in a load of laundry. And I come in and he's peeing on the floor. Evan, I'm sorry if you're listening to this. And I don't say to him, you idiot, how could you have done that? I stayed home for a week. God damn it. How could you do that? You know, on my carpet. Now I have to clean it. You know, I say, Evan, okay, listen, we're going to figure this out. We're going to take every toy into the bathroom and we're going to keep you in, you know, I don't know, not a pull up, not right. Not button pants. We're going to put you in elastic and I'm going to sit and camp out with you in the back. Right. I encourage him. I say, we're going to do better next time. It's the same thing with dieting, but us as dieters, we beat ourselves up. You said you weren't going to do it today. It's four o'clock and you just did it today. And we mm-hmm. know we got to figure out what we're going to do differently next time. You know what? At four o'clock, I'm going to go walk around Bloomingdale's at four o'clock. I'm going to go inside. because That's always my diet witching hour. And I'm going to go watch my show at four o'clock. I'm going to go sit in my bathing suit out by the pool. Cause we're in Florida so that I'm aware of my body. Cause it's four o'clock and I'm in my bathing suit, right? I'm not going to go food shopping at four o'clock. Cause when I food shop at four o'clock, my cart looks a lot different than it does when it, I food shop at 8 a.m. Or I'm going to do Instacart right now until I get control of the supermarket. There's so many strategies, but you got to use them. You got to use them. And we personalize them to whatever client who it is. I don't want to use them. I'm like, first of all, I'm that's, starving right now. Right? I right? feel like, no, I'm starving. I want to, I mean, we could keep going. And obviously, listen, you, you're a genius at what you do. And clearly it shows in what you look like physically and also mentally. And, and, you know, you're as beautiful on the outside as you are on the inside. And your book is fabulous. And I will use it as a guide. I, I mean, to me, when I go to a restaurant and they think they're doing me a favor by showing me how many calories it is, I'm already annoyed because they, they just wrecked it for me. And I know your little tip, which I love, which asks for a to-go case right mm-hmm. w- before the meal even comes, and then take half of the gluttonous portion that this restaurant has given me, and then you have the rest tomorrow. I love it. I get it, whatever. It's still, I just want to be like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I just want to like, I don't even like chocolate. I want it with pizza and cheese and bread and olive oil. But before we leave, because this is something that's been gnawing at me, I don't want to segue too much because this could be a whole topic in and of itself. But I do want to know your opinion on 
the whole Ozempic situation and how you feel about people who have struggled their whole lives and are trying to lose weight the natural, quote unquote, correct way. And now there's all these people that are, you know, beg, borrowing and stealing to get an injection. And I mean, forget the fact that they're lying about it. But what is your take on the Ozempic Monjaro production that's been happening over the last year? Yeah. So I actually like Ozempic as a kickstart for people mm-hmm. and for people to get a taste, I put that in quotes, of, of what it feels like to eat less. Because you have to eat less to weigh less. You, you do. You have to eat less to weigh less. So I really like it as a kickstart. I know you weren't expecting me to say that probably. But here's the dilemma. And I have clients who are on Ozempic, still see me for their head mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. dieting and overeating. But they're on Ozempic. And here's the thing. We, most of my clients who are emotional eaters, we don't eat with our stomachs. We eat with our eyes, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We're emotional we eat when, when we have a strong, uncomfortable emotion. It has nothing to do with physical hunger. Almost no one I work with is overeating out of physical hunger. They're overeating for emotional, right? Okay. So Ozempic doesn't take care of that. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm finding is, is that my clients who've been on Ozempic for a while now, they're kind of used to it, right? They're kind of gotten over the, the initial thrill of them eating so much less. And now it's like, and I see this all the time. It's like, you know what, Lissa? I was at my mother's over the weekend in the Hamptons, just giving an example, and I gained three pounds Mm -hmm. because she put out cheese and she put out this and she put out that. And Ozempic doesn't take care of eating with Mm -hmm. your eyes. If Mm -hmm. it's when it's a bad boyfriend food, you're programmed to pig out on it. You're Mm going to eat it. And Ozempic doesn't take care of I'm really sad or I'm really scared or I'm really lonely and I want to go have some Ben and Jerry's. You can override your physical hunger in 2.2 seconds. So I think Ozempic is great for people who can finally see what food control can taste like a little bit, not just always overeating. But the minute you go off Ozempic, you lose all of its powers. Right. Because mm-hmm. again, you're not, you never got all to the of root it. of the problem. Right away, right. right away, your gray is going right back up. It's not an appetite suppressant. You're going right. And so if you're going to be on Ozempic, my advice would be to take that time and that opportunity while you're on it to get control of the way, get some new habits yeah. and start thinking about food, eating and dieting differently. and. And Rachel, I will just say one thing, which is, you know, I never walk into a restaurant and if I see the calories, I'm like, oh, they're ruining it for me. I don't see it like that. It doesn't confront me like that, right? Right. You have a piece of resistance in you. Maybe it's a rebelness. You know, you have a little bit of a rebel. That's right. But maybe also, and I don't know, you're very comfortable with your weight or you have your system down pat of how you manage your weight. Well, the thing is that the irony of this whole thing is that People would look at me and be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You weigh 11 pounds, you know? But the reality is, is that being thin to me does not come naturally. I work incredibly hard to stay in shape. And my physical appearance clearly, as defined by this conversation, is much more in shape than my mental health about mm-hmm. it. And I'm I'm here to say it out loud. I mean, I've been saying it my whole life. And the other piece of the, the whole Ozempic craze that kind of bothers me is that we also want to factor in that the older we get, and you touch on this in the book relative to hormones and menopause and things of that nature, it gets harder and harder to maintain you know, being a size zero or a size two. And there are a lot of people that over the course of time who who are much 
heavier women, okay, have heard me say from time to, oh, I feel so gross or I'm so fat or, and they'll say like, why would you say, like, look at you and look at me, let's say, right? And I'll say to them, look, like you're you and I'm me. And I still have the the same inner work. It's almost like I have a fat girl mentality in a smaller frame, but the older I get, that frame is becoming a wide load because of the menopause and 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 just aging in general. And it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. So it doesn't really matter what size you may be on the outside. It I get that it's this inside job and it is hard, which when I see women who are I don't want to say overweight, but bigger women. I am so impressed that some of them walk around loud and proud with their guts hanging out and their ass hanging out. They're in skin tight. In a million years, I would never feel comfortable wearing that. But these girls are, you know, like those, the Lizzo's of the world, right? They are owning their big badonk, badonk, or, you know, whatever. And to some degree, you know, you got to commend those women. I couldn't agree with you more. I always say, like, when I when someone walks into my office, it's your personal gorgeous. It's not a number on the scale. I could care less. When people say they want to be a certain number on the scale, it's not because of that number. It's how they feel at that number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever your number is, it's your own personal gorgeous. Like, I don't care. I've been thinner than I am now. It was too hard to maintain. I didn't like it. I didn't like the mental focus it required of me. I didn't like the obsession. I didn't like how much I had to work out. I hate working out. Mm-hmm. I didn't like how much I had to do that. So I... I decided I don't want to, that's not how I want to look. And it's your personal gorgeous. And I agree. If Lizzo feels great in her body, I love that. That's sexy. Amazing. Right? Yeah. So it's not, I mean, I think we're all of a certain age where you sort of lose that. I need to be this number. It's just like, I want to feel my, I want to feel sexy. I want to have fun getting dressed in the morning. That's when I feel bad. When someone says to me, like, I don't even like getting dressed or I don't even want to go out to that event. I have nothing to wear. Like, you want to be present in your own life. You want to have fun in your own life. You don't want to be going to an event saying, walking in. It makes it breaks my heart when I hear a client say, like, it was my kid's bar mitzvah and I didn't even like what I looked like up on the bima. Like, that's not what you should be picking at your kid's bar mitzvah. So I, I have one last question, and I love all of this. I would love for you to come back on the show. How do you manage the person who comes in and says, I love where I'm at, or I, you know, similar to what you said, like now I'm a little too thin because I'm now perseverating on all of it. But like, how do we not make this become an obsessive thing? Like, how do we not trade in the obsession for the food that we, like Rachel is obsessing about what she's eating today, what she's going to have tomorrow, what she's going to have in five minutes and all of that. And how do we not bring it to the level of obsessiveness about, you know, tracking all of those calories and writing it all down. And we wake up in the morning and we have to plan so accordingly that it, and we have to bring our own food that it gets in the way. Right. So don't shoot the messenger. Again, you do have to have some structure and some routine. You do. Any change requires that, right? You don't just change. And I think flying by the seat of your pants is a beautiful quality. I don't have it, but it is a beautiful quality to have. Hey, Rachel, you want to go to the movies tonight? Yeah, sure. I want to go to the movies. I don't have that quality, but it's a beautiful quality. It doesn't work in weight loss. Flying by the seat. I mean, I'm just the messenger. Mm -hmm. Flying by the seat of your pants. It doesn't work in weight loss. And Does it work? In maintenance, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but does yep. it work in maintenance? No, and just getting back to what you said, which I really love what you said, Lori, the weight loss and maintenance, it's not like there, there's this big cement wall between the right. two. 
It's like a line in the sand. And what you did to lose the weight is really what you're going to do need to do to maintain the weight. Because if you start going back to what you did before you lost the weight, you're going to start going back to your old weight and you know your old pant size. So it's living thin at maintenance. And I work very hard with my clients on living thin. And it's very similar. Do you let go a little bit? Of course. Do you loosen up a little bit? Of course. I lose, I eat very different on a Tuesday night than I do on a Saturday night. Right. But we create these, I want to say like these food rules for Mm -hmm. ourselves that work for us. They're not bad rules. They're just, they're just sort of like, I clean the kitchen sink every night before I go to bed. Someone else might not. That's one of my food rules. It helps me feel calm. It helps me feel peace in my house. I like to wake up to a clean kitchen. Someone else might not care less. That's fine. That's not their rule. That's mine. So I work very hard creating livable boundaries or food rules for my clients. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Lisa, I thank you so much. And I know that we, again, could keep going and going and going. We'd love to have you back another time. In the meantime, to the listeners out there, if you want to grab your copy of The Skinny Jeans Diet, I'm sure you can guess where you can find it on Amazon. We had that we had that episode a while back. You can find just about everything on Amazon. Lisa, tell the listeners um, how to what your social media handles are and how they can find you on your website if they want to touch base with you. Sure. So lissaweiss.com is my website. On Instagram, I'm Lissa Weiss. On Facebook, I'm Lissa, L-Y-S-S-A, Dansky, my maiden name, Weiss. And yeah, I give free diet tips. I have a gourmet diet food line for dieters who want food swaps, just like I do. Rachel loves my donuts. And um, yeah, because we all want to be able to enjoy our food. So who doesn't want to And we'll link all your information on the bottom of our episode notes on the podcast too. So you guys, if you want to check out Lissa's tips, I get a kick out of it too. She's on social media all the time with her little couple second tips of the day here and there. And, and they're really fun. And they're, they do stick. They really do. So I love that. Keep that up, Lisa, because that's super fun. Dr. Boca, thank you for indulging me too. I, oh, this I, is you know, great. This, I think I have a caloric deficit right now. So I, <laughs> I definitely want to fuel up because I have to now start like really thinking about what I do right, what I do wrong. I am going to keep it in moderation because I know that's my personal goal life in general. But I can't say thank you enough, Lisa. We'll have to, you yes. know, break bread together one day and you can micromanage what I'm ordering. (laughs) (laughs) I would love it. We have a date. Okay. You got it. Dr. Boca, once again, thank you. I love our time together. You can find Dr. Boca and myself on social media at Unpolished Therapy. You can always email us as well. We are unpolishedtherapy at gmail.com. You know where to find us in the meantime, though. Every Wednesday, we will be right here on the corner of Audacity and Advice, where our wheels and yours are sure to get spun upside down. Thanks for hanging out with us today, guys. See you next week. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage. <laughs>